1 to 14. Luke 3, 1 to 14. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with your repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And also the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Let's pray. Our Father, as we study this portion of your word, we pray that you'll help us to understand these words that you've given to us. We pray that you'll help us to know what it means to repent, that we would be truthful in our repentance, that we would desire to do what is in accordance with your will. May it be, Father, that we have true repentance in all of us, and as we preach the gospel, may we be able to understand the true meaning of preaching the gospel faithfully, which includes repentance. Give that to each of us and build up your church. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in the first couple of verses, Luke, he puts the setting in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius was the third emperor of the Roman Empire. And here, this 15th year would be about A.D. 26. A.D. 26. He also situates it in the governorship of Pontius Pilate. We know of Pilate because he was the one who ordered the crucifixion of Christ. And Herod, who was Tetrarch of Galilee. This Herod is Herod Antipas, the same one that later we will read in Luke, Luke 3, 18 to 20, who will imprison John the Baptist and then behead him. This Herod, and also in the time of Philip, Philip was the brother of Herod, and this was where the controversy was, or at least one of the controversies. John the Baptist preached against Herod having Philip's wife for himself, which would be adultery. So he preached against Herod, and Herod uh, imprisoned him for that and other reasons. So then it says that 
These rulers are over Judea, Galilee, Iturea, Trachonitis, and another one, uh, Lysanias, was Tetrarch of Abilene. All of these are the regions around yeah, Judea, Jerusalem, and also around Israel, both to the north, to the south, and to the east, even on the other side of the Jordan River. And these regions are mentioned because these secular rulers or unbelieving rulers are over them, and we can place them in history, but it's also because these are the areas from which the people came who heard John the Baptist. This was, in other words, a real incident in history about 2,000 years ago, A.D. 26, that John the Baptist's ministry started, and then he became the forerunner of Christ. What we are reading is not fiction. What we're reading is actual historical fact. We know that these rulers existed. All of these that are named outside of the Bible, they are named in one place or another. And we have veracity, historical veracity here with Luke as well, that they were real people. And so when we read the Bible, we're not reading fairy tales and mythologies. We are reading historical truths, things that happen, even the miraculous events that happen happened in our world, in time and space. Not only did those rulers of the world, the governor, uh, governments exist, but look at verse 2. It was in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. In the high priesthood of these two high priests, this is when John the Baptist preached. We also know of Annas and Caiaphas because they continued to be high priests a few years later when Jesus is preaching and teaching and also when Jesus is crucified. Jesus in John chapter 18 is brought before both of these high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. And even outside the Bible, there are records uh, as to the names and the sequence of the high priests in the, in the time of the Old Testament and even here in, in the time of the New Testament. So these two names as well are historical persons. No one is fictitious here. Then, what, is this, what happens at this time? Verse 2, the word of God came to John. This expression, especially in the prophets, in the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the word of God comes to them. This is clearly an indication that John is a prophet. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 11 and Matthew 17 makes reference to John and that John is the greatest of all the prophets because he is the forerunner, the predecessor of Christ and will prepare the way for Christ. He calls him the greatest of all of them. John is not preaching this message because John is a religious fanatic. Yes, we're, we will read in Mark's version and in Matthew's version of the unusual character of John in that he stayed in the wilderness and he had an unusual diet, he had unusual clothing, but that was not because he was a religious fanatic. God specifically sent his word to John the Baptist as a prophet, and John was a model of austerity and a model of sacrifice and self-control to show that whether John preached the true gospel or whether Jesus preached the true gospel, Jesus did so eating and drinking. John did not eat and drink common, common food, but Jesus did. And in either case, in both cases, the people heard the same message, and in both cases, the vast majority of the people rejected the message. So, John hears the word of God 
even though he's an unusual figure. He hears the word of God, and he's further identified as the son of Zacharias, which we know from chapter 1. Zacharias, who was a priest. So John is a prophet and a priest from the priest, uh, priestly lineage. He's both a prophet and a priest. We have this happening a few times in the Old Testament. For example, Jeremiah was also a prophet and a priest. Uh, Samuel was a prophet and a priest. Same here with John. He preaches in the wilderness. When it says wilderness, it's talking about areas where there aren't very many people. Areas that are uh, prone to uh, solitude, where few people go, where the animals are, the wild animals are. That's where he went and he preached there. Word came from there to Jerusalem, verse 3. He came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a, a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. So he went around the Jordan area in this wilderness, and we'll see later that the people are going to come out, verse 7, multitudes will come out to hear him out there. They're going to go into an unusual place to go hear this unusual man with this austere and stern message, a message of repentance. So, when he goes there to the Jordan, the Jordan River is what is meant here. The area around the Jordan River, he preaches there because he's going to baptize. The Jordan River was deep enough at that, that time for there to be immersion, and that's what baptism is. When it says preaching a baptism of repentance, he would have immersed them. That is, put the whole body in the water. An example of where John the Baptist was preaching is found in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they were coming and were being baptized by him. So they're being baptized by John the Baptist in this place, Anon, near Salim, because there was much water there. It's evident that he's going there to this region of the Jordan because the water is deep enough for the people to be baptized. So baptism in the Bible, the word itself is a word that means in the original Greek language to dip or to immerse, to, to submerge. That's what the word baptism means. We have in English inherited a transliteration of it. If we were to translate it, we would say that this is an immersion of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Immersion of repentance. But the translators have chosen to use the word baptism, a transliteration, straight from Greek. And that has become, in a sense, unfortunate. It has become unfortunate because people don't know what baptism means because there's many interpretations across the denominations. What is, what is baptism? Who's the candidate for baptism? What are the prerequisites for it? How should it be conducted? When should it be conducted? All of these have become controversies. However, in the Bible, when one has expressed repentance and faith, then he's a candidate for baptism. This is the pattern in the evangelist Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and this is the pattern in Acts, the book of Acts. The people believe, they repent, and then they are baptized. And that, that's the pattern that John is following here. Note also, he, it is called, Luke calls it, 
a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. It's not enough for there to be a ritual. It's not enough for there to be a ceremony or some kind of official motion that is taking, taking place in a religious setting. God is not pleased with the motions of religion. He's not pleased with rituals and superstition as an empty and cold item. What he's concerned about is the meaning of that. If people understand by the preaching of the word, by the explanation of the ritual, if they understand that ritual correctly, then it has a benefit to them. And in this case, it's called a baptism of repentance. The baptism is of no value unless repentance precedes it, accompanies it, and follows it. The baptism is of value if the person understands the gospel so that he repents continues to desire repentance, and then follows through with that baptism in producing fruit unto uh, salvation, or fruit uh, of repentance, which is what John will explain in these later verses. Repentance is necessary. Repentance for baptism to be of any meaning. And here, Luke tells us that it's for forgiveness of sins. If there's no repentance, then there's no forgiveness of sins. God is not going to be happy because somebody is dunked, fully immersed in water. That itself is not going to please God in any way. It's only helpful if the person understands that the immersion in water is representing the fact that he is now uh, was a dead person and now he's alive. He's identified with the death of Christ, Romans chapter 6, and now he identifies coming out of that immersed water, he's going to come out as a new person. Because of that representation or that symbolism or that sign, that's the reason that baptism is of significance. He identifies with the death and resurrection of Christ. His old man dies and his new man comes alive and he's living as a new man, a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 So, the consequence or the result of repentance is forgiveness of sins. That is the hinge for forgiveness. If there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus emphasized this point, and so did the apostles, that repentance for forgiveness of sins is necessary. We need to explain this a little bit because there are many misunderstandings about what repentance is. There are some people who think that repentance is only to be preached to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. Let's deal with that misunderstanding. In Luke 24, 46, Jesus corrects that. Luke 24, 46, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus taught that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, all the nations of the world, beginning from Jerusalem. So it's for Jews and Gentiles. Acts 20, 21. Acts 20, 21. The Apostle explains, the Apostle Paul, that this was his message, his universal message. His consistent message was, Acts 20, 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ to Jews and Greeks. Greeks meaning Gentiles. So for Jews and Gentiles, repentance and faith are necessary. The one toward God and the other uh, faith in Christ Jesus, in His death and resurrection for forgiveness. So, this is necessary for everyone to hear this word, <coughs> repentance, to understand the gospel truly and believe in it. Another uh, misunderstanding people have about repentance has to do with them saying, the original word, as the argument goes, the original word means a change of mind. The word in the Greek, metanoia, means to have a change of mind. What they've done, though, is said, with this change of mind, we have to have a different understanding, different knowledge about who God is or the way of salvation. We have to believe there's one God, we have to believe Jesus died, He rose from the dead, that He's our Savior, and we're saved by grace. That's what they say. We have to have a change of mind, meaning a change of our knowledge base, so that we know that this is what happened. What they fail to recognize is that if you, in the, in the scriptural sense, have a true change of mind, it will lead to a change of life. It will lead to a change of values and desires, aspirations, ambitions. Those will change if you truly understand. Because a bare change of facts does not help anybody. In James 2.19, James says, You believe God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. It doesn't help the demons to know that there is only one true and living God. They, all they can do is shudder at the fact that they will be accountable on the day of judgment to that one true and living God. It doesn't benefit them because in their knowledge, it does not include repentance in the true sense. It does not include a turning away from sin. The demons will continue to practice sin and evil. Just as wicked people continue to practice sin and evil, it does not lead to a change in their life. Repentance and faith include a commitment to God that rejects evil and chooses the good. It believes in the goodness of God and clings to it. And it rejects all evil. And how do we know in this context that that's what he means? Well, we see from verses 8 to 14 that he's going to rebuke them for thinking that Abraham is enough. He's going to rebuke them for thinking Abraham is enough and that with repentance that they're doing just a little bit of religiosity and making themselves feel okay. They're palliating their conscience into thinking that everything is okay between them and God when it's really not. So he's calling on them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We'll speak of that more later. Now, let's continue in verse 4. John the Baptist is no uh, self-appointed prophet, as we saw in verse 2, but also he's not a, a Johnny-come-lately, somebody who is self-proclaimed. Actually, 700 years before, God told Isaiah the prophet that John the Baptist would come. It says in verse 4, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, these are taken from Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. These verses 4, 5, and 6 are taken from Isaiah 40, 3 to 5, 700 years before. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of John the Baptist's coming. 
so that the people would know that this would happen. This would be the sequence of events so that they know that he's a true prophet. They will know that John the Baptist is a true prophet because they know Isaiah was a true prophet. And there's been 700 years to vindicate Isaiah. And this is why he tells us that Isaiah came, or as Isaiah preached and John the Baptist came in fulfillment of this. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is preaching and crying out in the wilderness and in the unusual place. He's not in and around the temple. You would expect that. You would expect him to be in, in some prominent person's house, which many of the prophets used to do. Isaiah was in the court of Hezekiah. Jeremiah was in and around the temple and he preached. Daniel was in the court of the king of Babylon and then in the king of Persia. So they are in influential places very often. But in this case, it will be unusual. So in this unusual circumstance, they are anticipating the objections of the people. Well, why would a prophet go over there where nobody is living and go preach? Why would he do that? He must be a false prophet. He must be some weirdo fanatic. We shouldn't listen to him. But to anticipate that objection, Isaiah said, no, he's going to be in the wilderness and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. He is coming to prepare a straight path for Christ. That is, he's coming in order to prepare the hearts of the people to listen to Christ. He comes to uh, demote himself and to promote Christ. In John 3.30, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. So when he comes, his ministry is not about himself, as all true prophets and all true apostles and all true preachers and teachers of the gospel. They don't make the path ready for themselves. They make the path ready for Christ. They prepare people to meet Christ, not themselves. It's not about self-exaltation, not about self-promotion. It's not about a personality cult. It's about Christ. Christ has to be exalted. And he knows that. And that's what he's preaching. He's also preaching humility. Verse 5. Every ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough roads smooth. In the first part, this symbolism, he's talking about these valleys or ravines are going to be filled up, metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, and every mountain and high hill Symbol, uh, symbolic of pride will be brought low. So God is going to exalt the humble and He's going to debase and bring down the proud. That's what He'll do, which is something Luke repeats in Luke 14.11. Luke 14.11, He says, For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And Luke 18, 14. Luke 18, 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. This is what repentance does. Repentance brings down the people so that they repent of their sins, and when they repent of their sins, the one who humbles himself before the Lord will be exalted in due time. He's also about making crooked people, rough people, that is sinful people, straight and smooth. He makes crooked and rough people straight and smooth. Another symbol of repentance. People who 
practice sin, love their sin, have no care and thought for God, whose consciences rarely, if ever, prick them about the things that they do. He's making those kinds of people into new people. He make, he's making them straight and smooth so that they walk in the path of God. And who will benefit? Verse 6 says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. The salvation of God, we already saw earlier in chapter 2, verse 30, is Christ himself. Simeon said, For my eyes have seen your salvation, because he's holding Christ in his arms. My eyes have seen. So the salvation of God is Christ himself. But all flesh, all flesh is here, is a biblical phrase coming from the Old Testament, from Joel 2, 28-32, and Isaiah 66, 24, and other places. All flesh is an example, an Old Testament way of saying, it's not just Jewish people, but also Gentiles. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles. The Bible does this in many ways. It says it's the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Bible talks of all nations, all the families of the earth. It talks about the whole world, the world. When the Bible uses those expressions, it's trying to emphasize to the Jew who has the privileges of the law, the temple, and the covenants. They have the privilege of many things to make them realize salvation is not automatic for them. It's for all flesh, for all human flesh, meaning it's for many other people's not just your nation, but all the nations. It's available to them if they believe. If they hear the gospel, repent and believe in Christ, it's also for them. That's what all flesh means here. It's quite evident that all flesh does not mean every person. It did not mean that in the current context, and it never meant that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament when it's talking about salvation. It could not mean that, because when it says all flesh shall see the salvation of God, well, as far as we know, Tiberius Caesar never went to Judea. It was a petty place for him. He, why would he go to Judea to see Jesus? He never saw Jesus. So he could not be any part of this all flesh that sees the salvation of God. He never saw him. And there were many people before this time that were dead who never saw Jesus while he was alive. It's talking about seeing Christ spiritually, hearing the gospel and believing in him from people all around the world. All flesh. And, and by the way, when the Apostle Peter quotes Joel, he quotes him in Acts 2, 14-21. He quotes Joel saying, all flesh, but his application of all flesh is old men and young men, free men and slaves, uh, men and women. That's what he means by all flesh. All kinds of people will have the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit come upon them. That's what Joel meant. And that's what Peter experienced on the day of Pentecost when he quoted that passage. Now, verses 7 to 14. Verse, uh, verse 7 first. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now the multitudes come. 
Normally, we would think that when a lot of people are listening, that it's a good thing. But it's not necessarily a good thing. When a lot of people are listening, we notice here that John the Baptist, he rebuffs them. He, he stiff arms them. Jesus has done this too. He's done this on, uh, on several occasions. Two primary examples are John 6 when he fed the 5,000 plus women and children. 5,000 men plus women and children. And in Matthew 13, 1 to 23, when he's announcing parables to the multitudes. In John 6, he preaches to them and he rebukes them for wanting to come after him because they saw miraculous food and they were filled. Their stomachs were filled. He preaches a hard message to them, a hard message of believing in his death and resurrection, a message of predestination. He preaches this message to them and they walk away from him. They walk away. And only the 12 disciples are left. And then Jesus turns to them and challenges them. Do you want to go away also? So Jesus preached a hard message to the multitudes. Matthew 13, Jesus announces parables. His disciples take him aside and say, why are you talking to the multitudes in parables? Implication, it makes it harder for them to understand what you're talking about. Just speak plainly is their implication. But Jesus says that he purposely preaches in parables because he knows that only to those to whom it has been given to understand will understand, and they will understand. God will make sure that they understand. It's not intended for every one of the thousands upon thousands of people, and even tens of thousands of people who heard Christ, for all of them to understand and believe the gospel. That's why parables were announced. And the same is what the apostles practiced in Acts chapter 2. We spoke of Peter. He addressed the multitudes tens of thousands at least who came on the day of Pentecost and he's preaching to all of them but he doesn't tell them pleasant and nice things he preaches repentance to them and some of them repent 3,000 of them repent a, preach, uh, a sermon of repentance 3,000 out of tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of Jews who were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost so the pattern of the Bible is when the multitudes are coming to be warned and to preach to them a true and tough message. Jesus said in Luke 6:26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. False prophets always tell people peace and safety, peace and safety. They always smile and they're always giving out goodies to people and saying peace and safety. They bless them in the name of God, the God of heaven, when the blessing of the God of heaven is not really on them. But the people want to hear it, and the preachers, they want to say it because then they'll get more people and more money and everything like that. The multitudes need to be warned. Jo John the Baptist was a true prophet who warned the multitudes. He says, they were coming out to be baptized by him, but he was suspicious of them. He was suspicious of them because they are claiming repentance. We say that we, we know that because of verse 8. Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with your repentance. Bring forth fruits in keeping with your repentance. I don't see it. I don't see your desire for it. So I'm calling on you to hold back and be warned about this baptism. Don't just take this baptism as a ritual and Soothe your conscience as though everything's okay between you and God. He warns them about it. 
Luke tells us that it's the multitudes. Matthew in Matthew 3 tells us that in this multitude were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, along with others, we know that because we have here the rich, we have the tax collectors and the soldiers later in this passage. So in this multitude included the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So it's necessary for John, notice this, it's necessary for John to tell everybody in the presence of his enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that they all need to practice repentance. He said it in front of everybody. He didn't take the Pharisees and the Sadducees aside and say, hey, I want to be your friends, let's sit down and have a gentleman's conversation. He didn't say that. He rebuked them all because the people are following and listening to the Pharisees and Sadducees and they need to know that John doesn't agree with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They need to know that the way of salvation is this way because the Pharisees and Sadducees won't preach that true way. So he tells everybody. And what does he call them? You brood of vipers. He puts them all in the same basket. He lumps them all together. That's something that's a no-no today, right? You can't say that all, all famous preachers, uh, all modern preachers with a big church are, uh, are suspect. You can't say that. You can't say all of the leaders of the denomination, of this denomination or that denomination, are bad. You can't say that. You're lumping them all together. You don't know them. You've never met them. That's what the objection is. But John does. And even Jesus does. Matthew 23, he lumps all of them together. Yes, we know that there are exceptions. But we're talking about a, a, a truism. We're talking about what the general picture is. So he lumps them all together. He says, you brood of vipers. You pack of vipers. You pack of vipers. A viper. A poisonous snake. A lethal, deadly snake. That's what they are. Because spiritually, they are murderers. Spiritually, they bring about death. Their gospel is a false gospel and it brings about death. So they need to be identified. The people need to know. You know, if, and this has happened, you know, in the United States it has happened a few times that there will be some medicine that has been tampered with and then it suddenly appears on the shelf of the pharmacy in the drugstore. It appears there and then what do we hear? We hear the news and everybody telling us, don't buy this particular medicine because it's been tampered with, it's poisonous, it's lethal. Uh, somebody put something in it or the mixture's wrong or something like that. So don't buy it and in fact, get rid of it. Everybody's told and there's a big buzz everywhere for people to say, don't buy this or that particular product or these are the dates of its production. Go, go to your shelf, make sure you don't have it and don't take any of it. That's what John's doing right now. John is pointing out that those people are lethal. Don't take their medicine. Their medicine will not heal you of your spiritual disease. And then he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you to flee? How is it that you... Did you really get a true message? Did you really understand this true message? He's implying by this question, did you really get and understand this true message? And are you really coming here for the right reasons? Is that why you're coming here? Did you understand it, that there is a wrath to come, that is the day of judgment, 
when God will inflict his flaming fire upon all unbelievers? Is this what you're fleeing from? Is this really why you're here? Who warned you? Did you really hear this message? So he's pricking them into thinking about these future and eternal things to make sure that they are comporting with it, that they are agreeable to it, that they really desire it and want to flee from the wrath of God. It's good to flee from the wrath of God with the true, genuine desire for repentance and to be reconciled to God by that repentance. Verse 8, Therefore, because he's suspicious of them, he says, Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with your repentance. Bring forth fruits in keeping with your repentance. Repentance, though confessed, though expressed, though manifested in certain outward actions, initially, it needs to produce fruit, true fruit, enduring fruit, fruit that endures to eternal life. This is the kind of fruit it must produce. It's not enough just to say yes, just to say I, I believe or I repent. It's not enough to say that. It's not enough to go through a routine or a ritual. It has to actually produce something. And he knows it has not been producing it in these people. And he knows also human nature, their nature. Do not begin to say to yourselves, they say to themselves, they have in their head, smug and secure. We have Abraham for our father. You see, this is my pedigree. My ancestry goes all the way back to Abraham. Or I have Christian religion uh, among my forefathers. After all, my father was a pastor, my grandfather was a pastor, and we have uh, pastors uh, all as far back as we can go. Even in, in, into hundreds of years in the past, we can find this lineage. We are fi just fine. We, we love God. God's favor is upon us because none of us are drug dealers, none of us are murderers, none of us are adulterers. So we, we, we've got a good line. We've got a good breed here in this family name. People think that way. They think that way about their heritage. They also think that way about their accomplishments, about what they've studied, where they've studied, with whom they study, all of this. They, they like to boast in those things and think that they're secure, that they have, got, have it all figured out in their head and that they don't need to submit in repentance the way the Bible teaches. And John's warning them. He says, this is not the case at all. After all, he says, For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Don't you know in the, uh, that the miraculous God, who has the power to create the world out of nothing, who has the power to shape the world that he created into the way he wanted it created, the God who brought Adam out of the ground, he made Adam out of the ground, out of the clay of the ground, can, 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 and he made him into a human with a living soul, Genesis 2-7. Don't you remember it? And God did that with Adam. He didn't need your help. He didn't have to depend on your flesh. He did it himself. And even with Abraham and Sarah, they were both barren. They were both old and they were barren. They had no children. And God miraculously gave them children. In fact, Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 51, 1 and 2 refers to Abraham as a rock. He refers to Abraham as a rock. Metaphorically speaking, he was uh, dried up. He had nothing in him. 
He was not a plant that could produce fruit. His own body and his wife's body were like rocks, infertile. They were unable to do so. And what did God do? God miraculously gave Abraham and Sarah a child and descendants. So if God's able to do that, what makes you think that he needs you? What makes you think that he needs you? That you are something special apart from the grace of God? Verse 9. In fact, not only are you not special just because you are descendants of Abraham, you don't have the favor of God for your own salvation secured without repentance and faith, but God is ready to chop you down and throw you into the fire. He's ready. Verse 9. Also, the axe is already laid. It's already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's already ready. God could, just like that, cut off your life. And when He cuts off your life because you don't produce any fruit in your life, it's, that's it. And once He cuts off your life, He'll throw you into the fire. The eternal fire. Matthew 25, 41. The lake of fire. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. He'll throw you into the fire. And in that place, place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what God has the ability to do to every tree that does not bear good fruit. Then, that begs the question, what is good fruit? What is good fruit? Verses 10 to 14 help us. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? I like this. I like how, how he, apparently up to this point, did not tell them what they needed to do. He told them what their predicament was. He laid out before them the judgment and holiness of God. Their sinfulness and the judgment and holiness of God. He laid it before them. And so naturally, it would prompt them, it would goad them to ask, then what am I supposed to do? This is the right way to answer. This is what we need when we hear, have people hearing the gospel. They need to be asking. This is what they asked uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost. Then what shall we do? And Peter told them, Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So he told them that after they asked. The Philippian jailer, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are singing and they had been talking and, and explaining the gospel to him. But when it was time, he was about to kill himself because he thought Paul and Silas left the jail and he thought he would be executed for allowing prisoners to flee the jail, but they had not fled. And then he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He wants to know. He's begging to know. I want to be saved. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16, 31. That's what they do here. The natural response to hearing the gospel is to beg the preacher, now tell me what's next. I want to know more. Verse 11, And he would answer and say to them, Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise. Here we have food and clothing. Paul the Apostle says, With these we shall be content. In 1 Timothy 6, 6-10. Food and clothing. We all need food and clothing, and it's not wrong to have it. In fact, it's good to have it, for all of us to have a sufficient amount of it. 
Now, some of us have more than others. By this example, he's teaching us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He's teaching us to practice the second table of the law, the second part of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 5 to 10. He's expecting us here to understand that this would be a natural implication of loving our neighbor as ourselves. If we have more than we need and we see somebody in need, help the needy. It would be right and good for you to have concern for somebody who has a genuine need. This is what he's calling on them to do. Now, why would he call on them to practice the second part of the law and not the first four commandments? Well, the first four commandments, in a sense, could be easily um, done, and then the people could deceive themselves. And this is what John meant in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, John says, 4.19, We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So, people are prone to saying, and they say that these days, they'll say, it's easy for me to love God, it's just hard for me to love my brother. Or it's hard for me to love my Christian brother. It's hard for me to love this or that person. That's what people say. But that's impossible. He says it, he cannot love God whom he has not seen if he does not love his brother whom he has seen. The apostle says cannot. He's incapable of showing true love for God if he doesn't love the person he has seen. That's what is going on here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees erected many ways to pretend to love God, but they would not love one another genuinely and thereby show true love of God, a genuine love of God. And John the Baptist is hitting at this head on. And he's telling them. He doesn't tell them, go to the temple and offer a, a sacrifice. He doesn't tell them, go to the temple and make sure you go three times a day, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. at the hours of prayer. He didn't tell them to do any of that. He just told them to do this because this is where the rubber meets the road. He would find out if they truly loved their possessions or loved the Prince of Peace. That's how he would know. So he tells them to share. By the way, this does not support communism or Marxism. It doesn't mean that if you have two, you can only have one so that your neighbor has only one too. He's not talking about that. He's just using an example of a, of a common way that you can help somebody. He, that's all he's doing. He's using an example to preach the general truth that we should not love our things, we should love God. And show our love for God by loving our neighbor. That's what he's doing. Then, verse 12. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to collect. In this case, the tax collectors, they, they had to collect from the people on commission, but many of them would collect more than they were supposed to collect. So they would steal. The, one of the Ten Commandments says, You shall not steal. 
So they would steal from their neighbors, not loving their neighbors correctly. They would steal from their neighbors, and by that, they would show that they really didn't love God. Even if they went to the temple and did their rituals at the temple, they did not truly love God because they exploited the people. They took advantage of them wrongfully. They stole and took more than they were supposed to do. So John the Baptist, he knows that collecting taxes has its due place, but he knows that collecting more than you're supposed to is robbery. It's theft. So he calls on them to stop doing that, to stop loving money so much that they are willing to exploit their neighbors. Don't do that anymore. Thereby you show your love for God. And then verse 14. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Soldiers, whether Jewish or Roman soldiers, it doesn't matter. And in this part of the world, there would have been both kinds of soldiers. Jewish and Roman soldiers, perhaps in this multitude. And they are asking, what about us? What should we do? And what do soldiers do? Sometimes soldiers, especially when they are in remote places and nobody is watching, they steal, they exploit, they take advantage of those who don't have weapons. They have weapons and they exploit those who don't have weapons, especially women and children. They exploit them and they may even with one another in order to show themselves to be superior in their performance and rank they might accuse their fellow soldiers of laziness uh, or of dereliction. They might set up a, a fellow soldier to do wrong and then accuse him falsely, set him up and frame him so that he is in the bad books of his superiors. They might do that. He says, don't accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. They are paid, rightfully so. They're supposed to be paid, they are soldiers. A soldier exists to protect his country from foreign enemies. A soldier exists for that reason. And to that extent, Romans 13, 1-7, it is a valid and noble occupation to do so in the ethical way. And that's what he's calling on them to do. As a soldier, be content with your wages. Do what you're supposed to do. Do what you are commissioned to do as it is in accordance with the laws of God. This is why you are there. And do so and just be content with what God gives you through the government paying you your wages. This is what true fruit is. And this is what should be manifested in all true believers. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Two sides of a coin. Repentance is necessary and it assumes that faith is there. Faith is necessary and assumes repentance is there. Somebody has said that faith and repentance are the two wings of a bird that fly us up into heaven. A bird will not get up there with, with just one wing. Faith in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and repentance is necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. We must have both repentance and faith. And we've seen very clearly from this passage that Repentance produces a changed life. Earlier I referenced misunderstandings 
There are some who say repentance is optional and people can be saved by receiving Christ as Savior. And if they so choose, it's an option, later in life, if they want to, but it's not oblig- uh, obligatory, they can repent and receive Christ as Lord. Christ can be Lord and Master and tell them what to do later in life if the believer chooses Him to be Lord. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that at the point of conversion, when one hears the gospel and truly believes it, he repents also, because belief and repentance go together. He repents, he believes, and he begins to have a changed life. That's what it says right here. It says that the ravine shall be filled up, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough roads smooth. And this is for all flesh, for Jew and Gentile. Not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. A couple of examples to show that this is the case later on in the New Testament. Acts chapter 26, Acts chapter 26, verse 20. Acts 26, 20. The Apostle Paul is addressing King Agrippa, who is an unbeliever, And he says, a Roman official, verse 20, he tells what his mission has been, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. (coughs) Clear. He has a universal message. Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. One cannot say he belongs to Christ if he does not repent, whether Jew or Gentile, and then repentance has deeds that are appropriate to repentance. John the Baptist illustrated for us in in Luke 3, 7-14 what it looks like. Those were just three examples. There are many biblical examples of what repentance is. Another example, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, 16. 5, 16. We know that in Galatians, Paul is stressing the, the fact that the gospel is for Jew and Gentile. He's saying this again and again throughout Galatians. So 5, 16, he contrasts The deeds of the flesh, the old nature, the way we used to be as an unbeliever and the way we ought to be as believers. Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There, we have strife and warfare between the flesh and the Spirit. 18 But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Meaning, we're not under the condemnation and bondage of the law. Verse 19. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these. 
in case our, our pet sin is not listed. He says, and things like these. So he's including every sin. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that clear? If you practice those things, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no heaven, no forgiveness, no eternal life, no kingdom of God. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, anybody who claims the name of Christ, he has to have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's talking about that conversion when he heard the gospel. He realized that he needed to turn from his sins, repent, crucify his flesh, and believe in Christ. If we live by the Spirit, if that was the means of our salvation, if, if that's the means of life, then let us also walk by the Spirit. If the Spirit gave us life, the Spirit also expects us to walk by Him. Walk by the Spirit. And produce this fruit that He listed in verses 22 to 23. And if we love, have love, this is what He meant. Love of neighbor in, in John in, John the Baptist meant in Luke 3, 7 to 14. You'll share with those who have need. You will not rob from people. And then you will not rob and exploit people and accuse them falsely. But you'll be content with your wages. This is the way people will live. They'll live a contented life. With food and covering, with these we shall be content. 1 Corinthians 6, 6 to 10, he says that in verse, verses 6 to 10. This is what repentance is. So let's hear the true gospel and let's preach the true gospel, which is a gospel of repentance. The multitudes usually don't want this repentance, but we have to preach this repentance. And if repentance isn't preached, then there is no true gospel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.